Whoever you are, wherever you are, and whenever it is, you are catching some brainwaves coming to you from the banks of the humble yet forceful St. Vrain River in almost always sunny Longmont, Colorado. I'm Ben Kolb, and across the table is the only co-host who's actually fashionably early. It's Becky Peters. Becky, what's good? It's all good, Ben. Fashionably early, I like that. Even though I never am, I'm I'm always fashionably late. But I'm living life in 2019. I'm trying really hard to stick to my New Year's resolutions. We're like 18 days in. I've done yoga about nine times, trying to meditate, more time off screen and in person with my family and colleagues, and more time in between incredible interviews, which has been really fun because we get to dig into the content even further and have more furtive discussions about some of the interviews, which has been really cool. Absolutely. And we have an incredible interview in store for you today. And the topic is space, the final frontier. Dun, dun, dun. Not that kind of space. Actually, we're talking all about learning space. So, so far in Brainwaves, we've had the privilege of talking with uh, Stephen Chedletsky about why we teach. We spend a lot of time about the what we teach in the standards and the different skills we want kids to have. And then our Out of Our Heads Into the Classroom segment really focuses on the how we teach. But one thing we have never broached is the where we teach. And I'm so excited because this episode is all about where we teach and really making those spaces inspire the kind of learning we want in our classrooms. So my formative years of teaching in Illinois, I really was taught that where we teach does not matter. And that lesson was not any more clear than it was right around AP review season. And in the state of Illinois, we have these lovely tornado drills that happened quarterly. And you're going to think I'm making the story up, but it is hashtag true story. And in the social studies hallway that I taught in, the the tornado drill had to occur in an inside room with no windows. And so for all the social studies wing, that was the bathrooms at the end of the hallway were the only rooms with no windows. And so Tornado Drill came on in the midst of reviewing for the AP Gov test, and we were at the end of the hallway, so my class got stuck in the boys' bathroom. And I think the worst thing I've ever asked students to do is kneel down on the floor oh, no. of a boys' bathroom. Yep. No. <laughs> it, it really happened. And right behind my class was the person who t- taught right next to me, and he taught AP U.S. History, Kevin Colby. And he came in and he didn't miss a beat. He literally continued lecturing on the Jacksonian era and filling these kids' heads with knowledge. And so In the bathroom? I, yes, in the bathroom during a tornado drill. Huh. And I remember feeling like a failure, like, well, I can't teach anywhere. And, um, you know, I, at that time I was teaching in a classroom that I'd, I was able to have because of grant money. And so we had tables and chairs and they were collaborating and the back wall was a whiteboard and it was a really cool space, but I felt like, hey, I'm not as good of a teacher because I can't teach anywhere like Kevin could. Um, But since then, I've learned that I wasn't wrong in thinking that I couldn't teach anywhere. And the where we are in is very important. And the spaces that we have in our life inspire different types of thinking and inspire different types of behavior. So listener, can you think for a second, what are the different spaces in your life that inspire different behaviors, different thinking, or different feelings? And Becky, what is it for you? What are spaces in your life that inspire different types of thinking, behavior, 
or feelings? That's a really good question. And I, I don't know that I set it up super intentionally. We've got a, a study room at my house, you know, where I'm supposed to go and work and things, even though I have it set up for that, like there's bookshelves and a desk and things like sometimes I get my best work done in the one corner of the couch in the family room where I don't like I can't see the TV. I'm not like I don't know. It's where I go to work, right? Like we all have kind of a space like that. And if you think about it, like when I go to a Starbucks or something, like I can just put my headphones on and crank work out. They actually started making playlists like you see on Spotify, like your favorite cafe or something, because it's supposed to be the noise of other people chattering is supposed to help you be more productive. But I think about that versus like, I don't know, when I go to a movie theater and or like in an auditorium when I'm sitting just facing the stage and what that's set up for. I don't know. How about you? Well, yeah, for me, I think I used to not think space mattered. I as I've said on this podcast before, I, I lost 100 pounds and a lot of that weight was dripped off in different gyms um, all over the place. And I would go to the gym to really work out. And I didn't think that the gym had anything to do with me losing weight. I thought it was just the exercise. And so my gym membership expired like three member, uh, three months ago. And so I went out and bought all the stuff for my basement because over the long run, it would be cheaper. And I can't believe how much less motivating my basement is, even though it has all the stuff in it. And I just, I've maybe had two good workouts since I've had all that stuff because there's something about the lights and the people and the mirrors and the clanking of weights and the sweat and the music and all that, that I, I don't have in my basement when I hear my kids walking on the floor above me and stuff. And so space totally matters. Hmm. That's interesting. So different spaces, as we know now, uh, get us ready for different activities or different thinking. And one size fits all really doesn't cut it. There's a guy named David Thornburg and John Couch mentioned this in the episode that we had with him, but that there's three archetypal learning spaces and a classroom should be all of them, campfire, watering hole, and cave. Uh, And then I know John Couch added the mountaintop, but let's think through some of those. So campfire is where you learn from an expert, right? Like somebody's around a campfire telling you a story. Ben, how have you seen that? Yeah, I think that's probably what we see the most in our classrooms is they're set up for that expert at the front of the room. But I've seen some neat ways that teachers really get students to learn from direct instruction in more effective ways, eliciting feedback using something like a Nearpod where they're still telling stories, but they kind of splice it up and and add some questions, or even just using storytelling through something like a walking podcast where they will throw on earbuds and the same stuff that you might Ferris Bueller lecture through, you just say into GarageBand or into Audacity and let students learn in a campfire way, but actually walk in the halls. So I I think that's kind of cool. But yeah, as we think about how we make our classroom a campfire, a watering hole, and a cave, I I can't wait to hear from our our guest today on those things. But the watering hole is all about learning from each other uh, and collaborating. Becky, how have you seen that done well? I think my favorite example of those is the cooperative learning structures. Uh, They're really similar to Kagan structures, things like that. I just did one yesterday in a professional development called Quiz Quiz Trade, where you get a, and you can look these up online, I'll put them in show notes, but you get uh, an index card or something with a fact or a um, question on it. You become an expert in that thing, and then you go around and quiz your friends, but then you have to trade cards with your partner when you're done. So you get to have, you know, like 20 or 30 different 
different discussions if you do it a number of times throughout the room and you just find a new partner every time. And I think that's a really good way to share and to kind of uncover some of the prior learning from some people in your room and get you talking to people you might not have talked to before. Uh, So I like to do that one, but then keep it going for like a good, I don't know, depends on the age of the audience. Um, But like a good 10, 20 minutes, just letting them talk to each other about the concepts and trying to figure out where their gaps are and what they can learn from other people in the room. So like, and I don't know if you've ever heard that uh, quote, the smartest person in the room is the room, like using the all of the bodies in the room a little bit more as opposed to like just the one brain or, you know, it, there's actually another guy that I that I have worked with a couple of times said uh, that one of his students said uh, after using cooperative learning structures so much, yeah, it makes sense. Why would you only use one of the brains when there's 30 in the room? Which I thought was really cool. Yeah, totally. Oh, so then the last one is, oh, the cave. The cave. <laughs> so then the cave. So I'm going to let you talk about that. How have you seen cave done well in classrooms? Yeah, so that is such a, an important one. The cave is that time for reflection. And that is something, especially, again, I'm thinking of my formative teaching years when bell-to-bell instruction was the mantra that I wanted to have kids doing and acting from the second that bell rang until that bell rang to dismiss them. And I didn't give a lot of time for that. And so I've seen teachers now, because of the brain research, do a lot more to encourage that type of reflection, whether it's letting kids put their hoods up, whether it's letting them sit under their desk for quiet reading time. I think even having a time where you let kids have headphones and you norm that and just like we do when we need to reflect, you know, put in a pair of headphones. And I think it's important to have those caves in your building where they can go to. And I think, yeah, just like you said, for me, a Starbucks is a cave. It's a time where I'm surrounded by people, but that dull roar lets me actually reflect and and do some deep thinking. So all of this is going to be discussed way more by our expert, Dr. Robert Dillon, and we cannot wait to bring his interview to you. The rest of this interview, he asked us to call him Bob Dillon, and of course we couldn't say no to having Bob Dillon on Rainwaves. Dr. Dillon was a teacher, a principal. He is now a director of innovation in St. Louis. He's written the book Leading Connected Classrooms, Redesigning Learning Space, and most recently the book we talk about today, The Space. And without further ado, here he is. I'm curious what you and Rebecca were seeing and experiencing that prompted you to focus so deeply on space. Yeah, so Rebecca is an amazing partner. Uh, She's also in St. Louis. She's an art teacher here in St. Louis. Uh, She was an industrial designer by trade. She really saw what I hadn't seen yet. I understood that kids weren't engaged and didn't enjoy their classrooms, but she really brought to the table, here are the things in the design world that we can apply to education. And what we really tried to do is build a book that teachers could take home on a Friday, consume, and do something real on Monday. And so, you know, there might not be 500 words in the whole book. But it's idea rich. I, we tried to make it inspiring. We tried to make the energy kind of ooze off the pages. It's been really a, an amazing journey for both of us. I don't know that either of us thought five years ago we would be, you know, helping schools and districts around the country really think differently about space. I think I'm slowly becoming a believer in space and our new innovation center really pushed my belief in the power of space over the top. The new website should be launched by the time this podcast comes out, and it's super powerful. So I guess no one disputes what we teach or how we teach it, but how do you respond to the disbelievers who 
don't really believe that space matters. Yeah, and I think this is what drew me to this, is that I was a middle school principal for 15 years, and part of that in a school that really believed in expeditionary learning, right? Getting kids outside, out into the community, and outside of the community. And I watched students that were not lovers of math or lovers of science, but man, if you could get them outside of the classroom, like they lit up, they would do, they run through walls for, they were so excited to be at school. They would do work after the fact. And I said, well, we've got to close this gap. We can't take kids outside every day. We can't, I'd love that, but we can't, you know, take them out on, you know, expeditions or field trips, but how can we make our classrooms feel just a little bit more inviting around that? And so, um, we looked at that piece, which was certainly empirical in nature, but then we started to look at the emerging research around this that says that, you know what, movement and choice and getting kids actively engaged on an ongoing basis in the classroom uh, really affects uh, learning. And, you know, now that we have more, you know, brains that we put in fMRI machines, we know what lights up kids' brains and it's really educational malpractice if we aren't responding to what we know. Yeah, the quote, like, if you wanted to design a space that works the opposite of the human brain, it would look like a friggin' classroom. I think the Medina quote that, yeah, how classrooms had been designed is the opposite of how we learn. Yeah. Well, that's that's a call to action right there. <laughs> yep, absolutely. And, you know, we talk about collaboration, collaboration, collaboration. And then have you ever collaborated at the, looking at the back of someone's head? Like, that's what we do, desks and rows, and we call for that. And, you know, how do you collaborate on a desk that's eight and a half by 11? You know, no one does that. And so even getting folks to think differently, even if they don't have the funds and resources to really go kind of whole hog into the work, there's just so much we can do to be intentional as opposed to kind of letting just momentum and inertia take over. Could you give us one of those? Um, I, I think with it, when it comes to the tool, teachers can do like a bring your own device and they can kind of hack around not having the tools. But I think a lot of teachers throw their hands up with furniture and with classroom design because you can't necessarily hack through that or can you? No, you can't always, right? Like 85% of classrooms in America are going to have desks in them. We're not going to have tables or comfortable furniture. We're not going to have donors choose or we're not going to have garage sales. But one of the things we can do is we can absolutely think about optimizing the perimeter of the room. We know that things like clutter and color and visual noise are all things that can distract kids. And we always have control over less in our classrooms. And really, I haven't been in a classroom that couldn't take five or 10 things out of the room and honestly either store them or get rid of them. And so that's a starting point to at least break um, that kind of momentum. When you were here, you talked about, you know, go home over the weekend and and tell your kids on Monday that you rearranged the room and made it all new and ask them, you know, on Monday morning, what's new in this room and whatever they point out like, oh, that poster's never been here. And if, it, you know, you don't change anything, but then if that has been there for a long time and they're just noticing it, then it's probably not doing them a whole lot of good. Yeah. I, I think that we have to be able to sit down in our space and re and relook at it with new eyes. And sometimes you have to bring another person in and sometimes I play that role, but be able to say like, does that poster contribute to learning? Do I still need that anchor chart? Do I really need to make sure that 
all of those pencils are over there. Why do I have a bulletin board that's yellow and green and blue and every color in the rainbow? Because we have kids that struggle to focus, right? We have a noisy, busy society where screens distract us. We don't have to allow our classrooms to be that same level of distraction. And so, um, yeah, and asking students questions about what helps with learning and what takes away from learning that's an easy starting place that anybody can do for free. Hmm, like ha- asking your students what in this room helps you with your learning and what in this room take like detracts from it? Yeah, absolutely. And what I encourage teachers to do is put that on your calendar and ask your students every two weeks. It's not good enough to say I did it. Uh, it's are you doing it? Um, and, you know, just put it on your calendar every two, every other Tuesday. Ask students that question in some form or fashion. For high school kids, that can be a Google form. It can be an exit ticket. It can be something informal like go stand in the spot of the room that's your favorite. Cool. We just moved around. Now go sit back down. You just grab some really quick formative feedback from kids. That's a really good, that's a good tip. And the book is full of really good ideas like that, like just little things that, like you said before, that you can start with on Monday. Another thing that you, it has so many great one-liners in it that I just want to like put up and hang up in my room, which is the, the opposite of what we should be doing. But um, <laughs> one of the things- On a yellow bulletin board. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one of the quotes is, where our students learn matters. Are they guests or are they collaborators? And I'd love to hear just maybe a story or two of rooms that stand out to you of students that co-create their learning space and how that's changed their learning experience. Yeah, I actually finally got an amazing conversation between teachers and students on video this week um, where I know it's like six minutes and it's gold, right? Like there's a teacher that was basically asking her students uh, kind of a plus delta about the room. And, you know, she was responding to things that I'm pretty sure she wouldn't have done. Uh, but the students said that that's what they wanted and that's what they needed. And so she was bending even away from things that didn't feel totally comfortable to her. And so that was great to see. They were asking for things like, you know what, we could really use two more of those chairs because they stack and they're flexible and they can be pushed up against the wall so they don't take up more space, but they'd allow two more people to have choice during reading time. These were third graders having super meaningful conversations about their learning environment. And then, you know, uh, having some trust with middle school students to say the hallway, the library. I was in a classroom in Texas last week where uh, the teacher had like an office space that was attached to her uh, classroom, which was super cool. Don't always see that. But she turned it into an audio video studio for her kids. So if they needed to go record a podcast, if they needed to go shoot video, they could step in there. And I just thought like, you know, how great is it to say the students own this space I don't own this space. Just because my name's on the door doesn't mean I get to make all the decisions. Well, and thinking of the real world, I guess, and I know that drives people crazy when uh, kind of imply that school isn't the real world, but you look at the flexible learning spaces that a lot of startups don't um, have a designated space, but they're popping in and out of, you know, little parts and buildings and cities and stuff like that. I like that idea for sure. Yeah, I got a chance to travel up to Grand Rapids, Michigan. That's where uh, Steelcase's home is. And um, the one thing I appreciate about them is they practice what they preach. Their office space is designed to kind of optimize work and performance. And the other thing is they really, really 
are baked in the research. I mean, they've been doing this research around office spaces for a long time, and now it's really extending out into schools. And so, you know, part of my role is taking amazing research, whether it's from corporation or the University of Melbourne or, you know, the things that are happening in Vanderbilt. Like there's all kinds of great research around learning space and starting to translate that for teachers because we know that day-to-day classroom teachers don't have tons of time to translate research into practice. And so I see that as part of my role too. So have you read anything interesting lately as far as uh, either books or research that you that have really kind of captivated your thinking around learning or learning spaces? Yeah, I keep coming back to this piece about interaction geography. And so um, it's something that like you would say, oh, yeah, Disney does that, right? Like they study how people move through their space. Um, And then you think about a place like the Country Music Hall of Fame in Nashville, right? They know and they've done studies of like, will a six-year-old stand next to their mom and look at this for how long? And I just think we have none of that data in education. We do not know how kids move through a learning environment in a data-rich way. Like we have stories, we have ideas, but we don't have um, that type of data. And I would be super intrigued to begin to do some more of that interaction geography study around the country. Wow. Oh, I can't wait. I hope you do. <laughs> that would be that would be super cool. I think when when people are thinking about redesign, they they immediately go to the Facebook idea of completely open environment and just no walls, no barriers, that kind of thing. But one of the interesting things you talk about is the importance of quiet. Uh, can you talk to us about that? Yeah, you know, uh, here at University City, you know, 70 or 80% of our kids are impacted by poverty every day. And we know that life in poverty is a noisy one. Whether that means the outside environment's noisy, whether that means that inside of your house is noisy, stress makes things feel noisy, you're in front of a screen or a television or media all day long, or you have a parent that is so academically focused that they have their kid just cranked to 11, right? So at some point, um, our learning space also has to tend to kind of those social emotional needs of our students. And those come in all kinds of forms and shapes and sizes. But if our classrooms don't have a space for quiet, kids will make space for quiet. Um, I just know too many high school students that will go sit in the bathroom for 15 minutes because that may be the only quiet moment they have during the school day. Unfortunately, we've been converting a lot of our libraries into collaborative, noisier spaces, which is okay. But as long as we don't forget that part of the library quiet wasn't just the hushing by the librarian, it was a real need for introverts and kids that needed a break and to decompress. And so we just can't let go of those things as we continue to design forward. Well, and there's a lot of research being done about the Facebook type work environment that even a five second interruption can leave a cognitive remnant that makes you have more errors going forward. So I think as we think about designing spaces, we a hundred percent need areas for deep thought and deep work, you know? Yeah. I took, uh, I took advantage in your innovation center of that little uh, phone booth uh, that you guys have up on the second floor. Um, I needed to step in and do some recording and I just thought it was brilliant. I hadn't seen, um, a school district have one of those. And so um, I I was like, man, I need to get this in a few more places where uh, folks can step away. 
But you know, the other piece about open space is that as long as there are norms, right? Like if I'm sitting over here and I have my headphones on, the norm is that you don't bother me. Um, Because I think that sometimes it's just that adults or, you know, in schools, we don't have norms around our spaces. And so it becomes a free for all. Like if we don't talk about what happens in a creative space or what happens in a collaborative space or a quiet space, we just, I know it's silly for us to make assumptions that people know how to both be in that space and interact in that space. So I'm not going to ask you for an ideal setting because I know it's it's different for everybody and, you know, yada, yada. Um, but I would love to hear if you could paint us kind of a mental picture of one of your favorite learning spaces that you've been in. Yeah, sure. I, I was in um, an amazing uh, pre-K classroom recently. I love the idea that the color palette in that room uh, was coherent, right? Like that's one of the things that we really, really talk about. Yeah, it's not something that you can press a button and everything's painted the right color, but it was this black and white with all of these kind of like wood tones to it. And it really worked. Um, had an amazing space for reading, little small couch, comfortable seating where kids could have a literacy space. It had some interactive spaces where kids were doing imaginative play, dramatic play, had just a real sense of storage where they didn't have an overabundance of storage because it's always a, a limitation of classrooms. But the way that it had curtains over the top of it and just turned down the visual noise And then the teacher went out of her way to make sure that whatever wall that kids were facing the biggest part of the day had the least amount of visual noise and the least amount of stuff up on the walls. And so I I just appreciated her efforts in a deep way to be really intentional. That's really cool. I've been kind of obsessed with minimalism lately. I'm not good at it by any means, but I'm, I'm trying to practice. And I... I think it's interesting in the book, uh, and I know you touched on it a little bit, but like the idea that less is more, that, you know, it, it, we don't need millions of things in our room to make it feel like an engaging learning space, you know? Uh, and I think that's sometimes the fear that we have, like, oh, no, I've got to invite them in. I've got to, you know, make sure that it feels academic enough and make sure that I'm putting enough product on the walls that looks perfect. And I'm, I'm kind of curious, too, to hear you speak a little bit about your the idea of pushing in versus pulling uh, in the classroom, on the classroom walls, like the showcase versus display. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, for sure. And I think that, you know, someone asked me recently if I had a chance to rewrite part of the book, which one would it be? And it would really be around that that showcasing piece, because I think the idea that we celebrate hard work and final product, we know that the growth mindset work tells us celebrate hard work, which is awesome. We do that in schools. We put up kids' work. Fabulous. But we also talk deeply about learning as a process learning as failing forward, learning as something that takes time and iteration and hard work, but we rarely see that in a classroom. And so I'm just advocating for more images of students actually doing the learning as opposed to students having completed the work. And so if you went out in the hallway, you oftentimes see, hey, here are these art projects. They're beautiful. They're hard work, whatever they are. But what would it take to take three of those down and take three images of the kids actually doing the work and put them up within that display? So I think that values the process. 
But then also easy things like, you know, this whiteboard in our classroom is going to be a running dialogue of our thinking about social studies and our thinking about this novel that we're reading, that it's going to be this kind of ongoing thing where we scratch things out, we add to it. And basically, if you understand what's on this whiteboard at the end of a unit, you understand what's going on. So I just think we can convert some of these spaces into places that feel like process and really demonstrate and look like what learning really feels like for people. I disagree. I'd rather just print stuff off, teachers pay teachers, and throw it on a whiteboard. But <laughs> I guess you have your own opinion too. No, that is brilliant. Right, right. Yeah, 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 How cool would that be to have a classroom with pictures of kids working? Like that would be awesome. Well, the other thing it does is it changes the it changes classroom management too, right? So one of the things I get asked all the time is like, how does all of this change impact classroom management? And it does. It's an accelerant. So if you're a poor classroom manager, having flexible furniture and that whole thing is not going to make that go away. But images of kids, you can point to that as a teacher and say like, that's what it looks like when people are doing the right thing in my class. That's what learning looks like. And because oftentimes kids that have failed, kids that aren't successful, don't have images of what excellent learning looks like. So they don't have models. And so that alone gives them models. I, uh, one of our elementary schools, and I, I know more schools do it, um, but one of our elementary schools, Rocky Mountain Elementary, has pictures of kids doing work all over their building next to essays. Like, here's a picture of me writing that essay. Uh, it's just incredible. And it makes a huge, you're right, it makes a huge impact because students then see themselves as writers. You can't not. You're on the wall. You're looking at yourself being a writer. Writing. Yeah. yeah that's super cool. Wow. I'd never thought about that. It's blowing my mind, Bob Dylan. That's amazing. When you start your own school, which it has to happen someday, we know that we want, we have finite resources in choosing curriculum and choosing technology tools and choosing furniture. I've seen school districts go one of two ways, like invest heavily on the tool and the tech and the curriculum, and then others who invest first in the flexible space. How would you choose to use your finite resources if you were starting from scratch? Wow, good, great question. I think that I would first and foremost really reduce the amount of money I spent on curricular resources. And let me unpack that just for a second. Like we have this emerging work around open educational resources and districts continue to take 800,000 millions of dollars and put them in a new math series. I mean, I don't, how are you going to get better than Engage New York when it comes to math? I don't know. Like if you're going to do it, like Go take other people's stuff that's open and available and at least 80% of that and make it yours. So that opens up dollars for professional development. It opens up dollars for all kinds of classroom experiences. So I would do that first and foremost. But then I do think that two things are super important. We live in a day and age when visual display matters. And so I am not against having big visual displays in classrooms, but I think you can do that much more affordably. But we're also at a time and place where like kids need creation tools. And so whether those are, you know, tablets or, you know, laptops or whatever that is, I think we have to give kids an opportunity to have a creation device. Uh, and then I think we can do so much with so little around the space, as long as we're super intentional, that I don't know that 
tons of money has to be there. I just think tons of intention has to be there. And so I would spend money getting teachers into other people's classrooms so that they can put the ideas back into their space. One of the things that you talked about is, you know, the first question, your first question should always be, what do you want students to do in this space? And how how you can be clear about that and how you can make the students clear about that. Why is that the first and most important question? And how are you seeing teachers use that as a jumping off point for their, for how students use the space? Yeah, you know, I, I saw the momentum around everything going to furniture first. And I wanted to find a way that resonated with teachers and kind of also took them in a bit of disequilibrium. So the question I'm now asking teachers is what what are the verbs of your space? And most of the time I get a blank stare. But the idea is that like what do you what actions do you want to have happen in your classroom? A it says that it's an active environment. B it says that you have to be really intentional. So a math class might be about explore and discover and evaluate. And an art class might be about create and make and design. But if you can name those things, you can go out and build instruction. You can find technology tools. You can craft your learning space to meet that. And then you can also co-create that with students so students know what those verbs are. And it also gives them a deeper purpose about why they're in class. Because if you've ever been in a seventh grade math class, the question of why are we doing this comes up over and over. And if it's about the verbs, you've got an answer and uh, probably a coherent answer. So we obviously have some listeners in our district in brand new buildings, but then we have listeners around the country and the world who may be stuck in windowless closets. So for those who are stuck in windowless closets or you know spaces that are less than ideal, what are some hacks and easy things they can do to improve upon that space? Yeah, we certainly know the research tells us that natural light improves learning, even if you open the blinds and just let light in. So folks that are not in those spaces, um, if you can do anything to either simulate nature or to actually bring nature in, that can be animals, that can be plants, um, those things help learning and the research lends itself to that. Uh, The other thing that you can do is to use your visual display. So if you're in a classroom with no exterior walls, uh, I'm encouraging teachers to put up images of nature uh, on their smart board when they're not using it. Uh, I know it sounds silly, but it actually continues to kind of balance that kind of green time and screen time. Uh, And certainly we'd love to take kids outside and get more fresh air. But uh, if you're in that position, Uh, Don't forget that those are a few little hacks you can do to make things just a little bit better. Yeah, I also, I think classroomscreen.com lets you have like nature images in the back, but then you could also put a discussion question. So it's a a cool tool that we've highlighted before. Um, How about using your smartphone flash to kind of shine in the light of, uh, in the eyes of kids? Would that work? Uh Just, just, um, Okay. Well, no bad ideas. I right, just no, wanted to no, iterate no, with yeah, you guys. Always, always yeah. try. It's sunlight. Yeah, yeah. Okay. No, it's no judgment. Blinded yeah. by the light. You knew I'd sing at some point. Oh, <laughs> yeah, there it is. Bob Dylan, guys. <laughs> there he is. <laughs> um, Bob, I wonder if you could talk to us too about 
uh, universal design. So you, you mentioned it briefly in the book, but you know, there's seven principles, um, and we haven't really highlighted it a whole lot on the show. It, but I'm, I'm, you know, pretty confident that most people are, are familiar with at least what it is. Um, but there's seven principles like equitable use, flexibility in use, perceptible information, um, low physical effort, things like this. Which, which of those things do you see being most commonly violated, like for lack of a better word, uh, in the classrooms that you visit? Yeah. Um, I do think it's an important piece. And so I, I think a lot of folks that have been in kind of universal design for learning space for a long time will probably tell you like, yeah, that's what we've been talking about. No one's been listening. Um, but here's what we know is that making sure that people have access and movement uh, around classrooms is is a good starting point. Um, it may not get to all of the pieces of those design and all of those principles, but if you can't move around freely and you can't get to the things that you need, um, it's going to create a whole bunch of problems. It's going to create, like you said, uh, cognitive disruption. It's going to cause distraction. It's going to cause you to be off focus. And so I think those principles are a nice way to kind of um, really think what's good for all students. And I think that when this when those concepts first came out, they were really about our students with exceptionalities, right? But what we're finding is that um, oftentimes uh, what's good on the personalized end of the spectrum for kids is good for all kids. And we're drawing some of that across uh, to the work that we're doing as well. And But I'm curious, what what's any cool parts of your office? Like what's your learning space look like? Do you have a lava lamp? Be honest. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> I do. <laughs> uh, I actually just changed my desk out the last this week. So that that's probably the, the most fun about my space is it's always changing. So um, this year I actually share a space with another person. Uh, and so I've been actually having to practice what I preach a little bit about um, flexibility. So I'm actually sitting in um, uh, someone's office that only works Mondays and Fridays. And so I'm actually recording this from there. But I changed my desk out to be uh, a writable table. And so the whole table's writable and I got it for, it's like an Ikea table. That's like 80 bucks. And so what an easy teacher desk on wheels, writable, and, uh, doesn't take up a huge footprint. So, um, doing a little more to practice what I preach around, uh, uh, minimizing the, the teacher kingdom. How do we get the, the word out? I, I just look on like Pinterest and the teachers who are kind of like getting, shared and all that stuff are the ones who their classroom looks like a shenanigans restaurant, you know, with just all this cute stuff all over the place. Like, how do we stop that myth that like, yeah, how do we get the minimalism message out there? Yeah, because it's kind of a personal thing, too. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, we are trapped a little bit in kind of that decoration mentality, right? If people go to Pinterest and think that's what a classroom should look like, um, they really are just chasing a fad and not doing anything that's design oriented. But, you know, one of the places where there's actually good conversation, good images and good resources, if you go to hashtag learning spaces on Twitter, um, I really respect the community of people there. It's not a, uh, it's not a bunch of folks throwing product at people's faces, but it's really people that are sharing good stuff. Uh, and then also I look at um, when I go to Instagram, I also follow that hashtag on Instagram. And so I feel like I get more of that into the mix. And then the last place I send people is a place called Flex Spaces. 
And flex spaces started as a higher ed movement. So higher ed could share, but they're really moving into K-12 now. And so lots of ideas to be had there as well that people are doing it the right way. And it's, it's so, I mean, w- those hmm. beautifully decorated rooms, that takes hours. And so I think it all just comes back to the John Hattie, know your impact and what's the best use of your time. And that classroom looks really cute and is getting shared on Pinterest, but it isn't necessarily the best use of your time, you know? Yeah. And there's a lot of guilt and a lot of anxiety in in the teaching profession around the person next door's room looks like that. And everyone comes by and, you know, it's like the person has the Christmas lights out. Right. And then you're like the neighbor that has like the inflatable and you're like, well, I better better step my game up. And so I'm going to go spend more money. And it doesn't have anything to do with the true spirit of Christmas or have anything to do with, learning right like just take that metaphor as long as you need to you don't need to feel guilty for how you decorate uh feel you know if you're not being intentional uh then you know do something about that god so much of it is about permission you know just it's okay i appreciate that i'm taking down the live nativity i'm I'm getting (laughs) the donkeys in my yard are driving me nuts so i just really appreciate that permission (laughs) <laughs> but like, I'm trying to clean up my house too. And it's, it's so hard. It's not even for anybody else. It's just like, I feel guilty throwing things away. Cause like, Oh, I bought them or somebody got it for me. Or, you know, like I want to be, um, right about how I spent my money before. So I'm not going to admit that it was a waste of it. You know what I mean? And it, it just, it, it snowballs into this cluster of a, you know, packed closet of things that you end up having in your room for five years and, you know, don't have, so th- I guess that's another question of mine then. How do you, how do you keep, going with these things. You, you did mention once, like ask your students every two weeks, um, is that enough of a dipstick or, you know, how do you kind of keep your own mental game on these things when there's so much to think about? Yeah, there really is. And, you know, I think that, um, you know, I'm encouraging grade levels, teams, schools to kind of build a set of principles that they want to hold themselves accountable for. And it might mean that next semester I'm going to have less in my room than I had before. Or it might mean that I'm going to give more of the writable space back to students than is in than I have before. I'm going to make sure that I put up an artist statement in the hallway for anything I display so that people walking up and down the hallway can understand why that project happened. It can be really easy stuff that everyone can agree to. Uh, it might mean that we're going to have more choices for kids than we currently have in our classroom. Uh, So there's all kinds of things, but I think when you have an accountability group, you'll stay on the journey. Just, we know this about fitness. We know this about weight loss, but it's feels like the same about space design is that you can't be a lone wolf and hope to keep your momentum going. Mm. And fresh eyes are so important. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting. Yeah. You did, you mentioned too, I know we have to let you go, but um, you mentioned too, when, when we were together, like, you know, consider cutting your whiteboard in half, like hot dog style, not literally, but with a marker and you use the top since you're tall and let the students use the bottom. That's awesome. Yeah. It's, it's little stuff. And you know, that idea came from a teacher, right? Like the other part is that I'm in a place now where I'm just out gathering these amazing ideas that teachers have had and making sure that everyone has a hold of them. And so um, part of my role is to release trapped wisdom into the system. Uh, we have lots and lots of awesome things happening behind classroom doors, uh, and more people need to know about them. Release trapped wisdom. I love it. <laughs> Releasing trapped wisdom. That's 
definitely a mic drop. Uh, we will let you run on this because it, um, it is this time has flown by. Where can our listeners go to learn more from and with you? Yeah, um, drrobertdillon.com gets you to uh, the new website that's launching here uh, the first turn of the year. And then I'm also Dr. Robert Dillon on Twitter, and lots and lots of resources flow that direction all the time. Um, and so, and then anyone that um, wants to get a hold of me to possibly visit their school or their district, uh, uh, my email and my phone number are all over those places as well. Bob, thank you so much. You released that trap wi- trapped wisdom to our podcast listeners, and I really appreciate it. <laughs> okay, Ben. So after all of that, what did you learn? What sticks out to you the most? Yeah, the thing that stuck out to me the most, what I loved, was when he talked about don't adorn your walls. First off, don't adorn your walls to decorate them so you get to the top in Pinterest. But don't put completed student work on there. That's not motivating. Put pictures of students in the midst of the hard work. And I think, again, back to the gym analogy, that when I walk into a gym, I don't want to see a poster of LeBron James holding up the NBA championship trophy. That's not as inspiring as watching him with a couple battle ropes just dripping sweat doing the actual training for it. And I think it's way more motivating to see students in the midst and in the thick of the hard work than it is to see an essay on the wall or anything like that. So I think that's a really easy, tangible tip. Take pictures of kids doing hard work and and post it on the walls. How about you, Becky? Man, I learned so much and it really helped me reflect on um, all the things that we talked about. But first, I love that there's a science behind it. Like my first classroom was definitely decorated, not designed. Like sure, I thought about functionality. I thought about where students would work together. Um, But I didn't think about the vertical space. I didn't think about the empty space, you know, intentionally. And I think that the more that we talked about less in this interview. And it, it, like I said in there, I've been you know trying to read about minimalism and things like this. And it reminds me of when Dan Meyer too says, be less helpful. Like you can always add information. You can't subtract it. Um, and I think we need to be that intentional about our classrooms too. Like maybe including less so that we can breathe easier and declutter and de-stress. And even just the act of thinking more intentionally and kind of taking control of those things instead of just letting it be the four walls that you're put in, like that intentionality can be super satisfying because you're taking control over it. Um, I also would love to share a voice message that we got from a teacher. So you know we're asking you for those. And this one is mostly around assessment-capable instruction, but really it's about listening to students like Bob advocates for so much in that interview just heard. She also talks about movement and choice and using the space of the room during assessment. So I'd love to let you listen to this uh, before we wrap up. I'm Susie Evans and I teach first grade at Hygiene Elementary. I think like most teachers, I start the school year with a particular focus or commitment. And this year, I really wanted to focus on empowering my students to drive their own learning and particularly their own assessment. I feel that even as young as first grade, the students are capable of determining what their own strengths and opportunities are, and they can have and benefit from metacognitive conversations where they analyze the why and strategize and plan for possible problems. For example, just before the mid-year iReady tests, we had a planning conversation in our room about why we take the tests at all. And it was so amazing because I started with, what are your thoughts about whether this is the most important test you'll ever take? And they all immediately shouted, no, no way, with these you know amazing big smiles on their faces. And I asked them, then why 
do you think we take these tests at all? And their answers were everything from trying my best to learning, to practicing, taking risks, which was my favorite answer, um, to see if we understand all the things we've worked on. And then even it helps you be a better teacher, Mrs. Evans. It was, it was great. And of course, you can imagine all of this in the cutest voices ever um, saying this. Even at six or seven, at the same time that they're aware that it's not the most important test of their life, they were completely on board with still trying their best and, and why we take them. And they even went on to strategize about if there's someone who rushes through things, they would count to 25 in between questions or use a calming strategy and if they were someone who gets distracted they could move their body somewhere and and they really did about 15 minutes in if you came in our room you would have seen kids on the rug with their chromebook or in a beanbag chair or counting silently to themselves or taking a stretch break and so it really told me that they really knew themselves as a learner and they were following through on the planning conversation we had just had. In that moment, I I knew that we had buy-in and buy-in is such a huge part in growth. And I can't say for sure whether this determined their results, but we had an average growth of 46 points in reading. And it really seemed to me that they felt less stressed about the test and almost had this attitude like we were a sports team or something and we had just had a huddle and they were so psyched to go out and show what they know. And remember, we want your stories. We want your tips. We want your examples. Uh, So please call in 720-900-1741 and leave us tips about anything and everything you can think of, whether it's feedback for us or uh, tangible tips for the show that we can include as a voice message. We would love it. Thanks for listening. Have a great day.